Welcome to the Von Nelson Podcast. With me today is CEO and CIO, Chris Walls. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Dan. All right, Chris. So uh, since we spoke last week, uh, another uh, another wild week in, in the market and uh, the economy, looking out at uh, the impact of, of coronavirus on a global trend. And uh, let's just start off on just kind of where we stand right now. Let's look at it from an employer's perspective or employee perspective. You know, where do we stand? Hours of work. We continue to see this downward trajectory. Um, if we look at jobs numbers over the past four weeks, uh, you know, we've, we've seen unemployment claims reaching 22 million, uh, which unfortunately is, is actually equal to the cumulative job gain since 2010. So, um, you know, ugly numbers out there. Love to hear, you know, what your thoughts are and, and where you see this going. Yeah. Uh, well, I hope I certainly expect that we're through the bulk of the layoffs. I don't think we're at the end of the layoffs. Um, you know, if you kind of monitor hours worked, um, you know, they're still down and trending lower. Hours worked are down about 67% year over year. Businesses that are open are down 55% year over year. Employees that are working hourly are down 66% as well. And, you know, we need to keep in mind that the first businesses to lay off are short cycle businesses, um, and you know there's there's no shorter cycle than you know, a, a restaurant or hotel and leisure. And the next round is coming from longer cycle businesses. So these could be in the form of longer sales cycles. It could be IT, IT projects, uh, you know, construction activity. That's kind of the next round, and then that's also tied into the capex cycle. And clearly, CapEx is going to be very weak going forward. So I do expect to see, you know, further very large uh, levels of layoffs, maybe not near the magnitude we've seen so far. And the thing to keep in mind is we'll need to continue to track the difference between prior year unemployment claims and the subsequent periods continuing claims. That'll give us a judgment as to whether the layoffs are true layoffs or whether it's employees being furloughed. And so far, that percentage is ticking up to being a greater percentage each week that are being laid off permanently and not temporarily. So, you know, still a pretty bleak picture out there. Um, and, you know, there's going to be some structural elements to this to where even if we, quote, have a V-shaped recovery, we're not going to pull all those uh, employees back into the workforce. The other thing to think about just from an economic standpoint is the initial un level of unemployment is coming from the hourly workers and the lower wage workers. What we're going to see moving forward are higher levels of income. Uh, and we already had a very significant issue with inequality in this country, and this is going to significantly exacerbate that issue, and it's going to be with us for a while. Right, and and you know, thinking about that, and and, and maybe on on shifting a little bit more specific to to the equity market, you know, we've gone through uh, the beginning stretch of this this month, right? We've the best 15 day stretch that we've seen uh, since the 1930s, and then here we are this week. Followed up by big, two big down days. We're recording this on a Wednesday. Two big down days, uh, and then today Wednesday another big up day. Uh, each move this, this this week has been somewhere between two and three percent. Um, you know, when, when do these swings start slowing down? Uh, when do we start stabilizing? Or, 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 or do, I guess the question is, you know, do they slow down? Yeah, you know, as long volatility is going to remain elevated, um, and we're not going to get back to the you know sub twenty vol for some time. 
And so when you have vol at this level, your daily swings really are, you know, one and a half to three, four percent because the the implied fair value, uh, whether it's a hedged instrument or just the bid ask spread between people doing their underlying due diligence and having binary outcomes is wide. Um, and so this volatility will definitely be with us for a while. And even if you can gain comfort with the trajectory of the recovery in the economy, that's going to be very different than the trajectory of the recovery in earnings because there's going to be margin pressures. Uh, they're probably going to be quite significant. And in some cases, they're going to be viewed initially as, as temporary, but they're going to turn out to be structural uh, depending on, on what your actual underlying business is. And, and the other thing to think about is the market is not – um, you know, moving around based on what they believe earnings are for 2020. The market's moving around based on what they see is either the ability to begin a normalization and a reopening of the economy, and I hate that term reopening, but, you know, that seems to be uh, the nomenclature we're going to use, or um, you know, what what is going to be more structural changes, whether that's in geopolitical relationships, whether that's in the survivability of certain sectors of the economy, that's really what's driving the near term. Once we get further into the summer, beyond the second quarter, into the third quarter, then the market's going to start starting to discount, oh, now we can start to discount where the, where the bankruptcies are, where there's going to be a recovery how fast we're going to get back to the employment. Do we have increased political risk, not just domestically, but internationally? So I, I expect this volatility to be with us sometime. You know, what, one, one question here, um, you know, we, we see sometimes the, looking at bank, you know, companies that are, are, are negative earnings or potential bankrupt candidates, uh, bankruptcy candidates. How, how have you seen them trade, right? Have, have they been you know, uh, unfairly punished, or are we seeing, you know, the, the kind of the, the writings on the wall for these companies and folks aren't going to have the patience to write it out and see what's taking place? Or you know, what are you seeing as, as how are those companies trading out in the market? You know, I, when you look at where the financial stress is, either at the business model level or just structurally with, with a balance sheet, an over-levered balance sheet that may have some nearer-term maturities, their relative performance is consistent with their individual idiosyncratic situation. So nothing unusual there. What's been surprising is as we get, you know, the best 15 days since whenever time period, uh, I'm shocked at what people are willing to pay for some names. You know, you know Chipotle is a great example. It's kind of fully recovered uh, from the pre-coronavirus sell-off. Um, not clear to me when they're going to return to profitability, and it's not clear to me, you know, that they're not benefiting from having a digital platform uh, at a time when a lot of independent restaurants are out of business. And, you know, I don't expect to get a recovery in the independent restaurant space back to where we were anytime soon, but on the margin, they're going to come back, and on the margin, that's going to still share. And so companies that really didn't go into this at attractive valuations, um, I think people are going to be quite disappointed. I think they're hiding out in those areas of the market, and you may end up owning a company today with a great competitive position and, a, and a, an improved outlook and a share gainer, but it may turn out to be just a horrendous investment because you end up bleeding multiple out over the next several years.
Yeah, no, that's 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 great. Um, okay, so the other big news this week, uh, we had you know the second stimulus package, if, if you like to call it that. Um, second stimulus package gets approved. First time around, uh, not all the folks that that really needed ended up with it. Uh, you know, we were chatting earlier. You're not of the belief that that the second package here um, will get down to the people who who really need it most either. Um, can you can you touch on on your reasons why that'd be great? Yeah, I mean, the biggest issue is, and this is what I think people are, are underestimating the impact of this pandemic is going to be long term. And, and, and I say this even from the standpoint of, let's say it just lasts through the, the second quarter. And I'm of the impression, you know, we're reopening and going back to start to resume normal activity in the next week or two. Uh, but even with that, I think a lot of market participants look at the S&P 500 and think that reflects the underlying economy, and that just couldn't be further from the truth. When you look at the structure of our economy and the structure of our employment base, you know, 50% of our employment base is with small businesses with less than 20 employees. And, you know, a very large percentage of those small businesses don't have a banking relationship, meaning they're they're not their source of original startup capital is not a bank. Uh, they don't have a working capital line of credit or anything like that. And so I understand why the federal government is using banks to try to get this stimulant dollars out, because if you tried to run through the SBNA, that would be a total dumpster fire. And if you tried to you know, run through the Treasury or the IRS, that wouldn't make sense anyway. Um, you know, there's an argument that could be made. They could have done it directly through payroll processors and would have had better luck. But payroll processors don't have as strong a lobby as the American Banking Association. So the American Banking Association gets to get a, a commission off these. But they did what banks do, right? They Banks are, are businesses, and the first thing they did was take care of their customers and take care of their best customers first. So, you know, there's just a, a very large percentage of businesses without banking relationships that are at the back of the line. And at the end of the day, we're trying to, you know, fix a problem with a very blunt tool and that tool's just not going to be effective. So uh, I don't, and, and, uh, and the, really the, the thing that we need to keep in mind is those businesses that are most vulnerable, that are the most dynamic parts of the economy that don't have these banking relationships also didn't have a lot of cash to ride this out. So maybe they had eight weeks to 12 weeks of ability. So getting the money out the door quickly was incredibly important. Uh, but even if, I think in, in, from a government standpoint, this occurred at light speed, we're going to end up being a month or two too late for a whole, a whole host of businesses. And, that, you know, it's one thing that, well, we'll get through this and then we'll recover but this is going to get to the heart of the issue, and this is going to drive and accentuate the inequality that already exists, and it's going to play into politics. And what I don't think people are factoring in when they're looking at the, the market and what to pay for assets is because of the political ramifications of this and just because of the demographic and underlying leverage set up, the federal government, the state government, the city government are going to have a larger role in the economy. You can go back and, and look at the 30s, and we saw a significant increase 
in the federal government as a percentage of GDP, orders of magnitude from where it started. And the same thing is going to happen here. We're going to be running deficits that may be upwards of 30% of GDP. Government entities and politicians don't easily cede power and control. And so that means uh, a, a much lower level of productivity, a much lower level of profitability, a much lower level of growth. Um, and that needs to be factored in as well. And if you know, you're a luxury good provider. You don't want to look at history and see where, you know, luxury margin or where high-end wealth taxes started and where they ended. Um, it's a, quite a scary phenomenon. We're on the exact same path. So politically, you know, everybody over the median income level at some point is going to see their marginal tax rate increase substantially over the next 10 years. Right. And, and you know, just kind of to, to recap this a little bit there, you know, as, as, as you're discussing small businesses, less than 20 employees, low cash buffer, potentially a lack of banking relationships, right? I mean, this is, you, you add all these up and what it spits out to you is, is, you know, this is a reason why we're starting to see an increase of, of permanent as opposed to furloughed employees. Would you agree? Yes. Yeah, great. So, all right. So as, as you talk about the structure of the economy, um, one thing that's you know is is, is really starting to get up now is, is we're seeing supply chains and supply chain disruption. Uh, just in the in the last few days, you know, we've seen uh, some statistics coming out. Canada has lost 36 percent of their beef production. U.S. has lost you know, 15 percent of their pork production. Um, you know, we're starting to read into folks having uh, fears around global food shortages. Uh, you know, these are these are really you know massively impactful for um, you know millions upon millions of people. You know what what. What happens here? How do these get back on track? Um, how devastating could these supply chain disruptions be? Yeah, I mean, and this is the point we've been making for the last several weeks, which is, again, just the nature of this recession, and let's go ahead and call it what it is. It's now a depression. There's a high likelihood we're going to have a lower GDP, certainly in this quarter than what we experienced in the Great Depression. But, um, you know, it'd be a base case to assume that the entire of of, of, of the year will be lower than what we experienced during the Great Depression. Um, and, and with that, the nature of this is we're having supply shocks. And, you know, we've, we've seen that with oil that turned negative this week for the first time from a price standpoint. Um, we're seeing that with the beef processors uh, in Canada where it's nothing more than their labor force is sick. And that's a very difficult situation when you're in a factory or a production environment where people are working in close proximity and have shared services. Uh, and we've seen it with pork production. At the same time, we're seeing whether it's a dairy farmer or uh, a, a farmer of vegetables where there's so much excess production that they're just plowing the crop back under or they're pouring the milk out and just having to dispose of it. Um, we can't forget that we feed a large percentage of the rest of the world. And at the same time, you, you don't just turn the supply back on. So if we've lost production capacity, are we going to start slaughtering heads of cattle, slaughtering pork, slaughtering chicken, plowing back under fields? And then when we do that, we're moving into planting season. What percentage of our acreage are we going to plant? The farmers are in a very, very difficult situation. Are they going to plan on a full recovery? Uh, my guess is not. Maybe they plan a little less than they did. 
Well, then what happens if there's shortages again and we have spikes in prices? That's why I think we are very susceptible to inflation and stagflation. And, you know, we don't even want to talk about what that does to PE multiples because then you're going to see PE multiples, you know, easily fall by 20 to 50 percent. Uh, but that's the nature of this, and and uh, we got to be very careful and cognizant of of those risks and those issues. Right, uh, and and you you mentioned oil in your in your last response here. Uh, it's been a, it really a crazy few days for oil, right? I mean, for the first time ever, um, we saw WTI oil May oil contract uh, go negative. Um, but again, you know, as 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 crazy as that's been, you know, we're looking out at the future, and and folks are are saying, you know, there's there's potential oil shortage as, as as much as we feel as we're going to be washing it for a while and and how inexpensive it's become um but but can you make can you kind of, kind of connect those two dots there yeah so you know the funny thing is like we're used to some commodities trading negative uh if you you know kept up with power trading there were there's been times when an electron would trade negative and the reason it does you can't store it so you have to get rid of that electron when it's produced well, when you run out of storage for oil, you have the same phenomena. You can't store oil, so you got to do something with it, and you got to get to the point to where you create shut-in economics. And just like we discussed with employment, I mean, I, the world and the, uh, the 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 global investor, the investor, the retail investor, cannot wrap their brain around the level of disruption that has occurred in the last six weeks. So. And round numbers, and, and you know, I'm, I'm using a round number of 90 million barrels a day. It's actually more than that. But oil consumption is about 90 million barrels a day. Um, we've lost somewhere between 30 and 35 million barrels a day of demand for oil. Now, keep in mind, a 1 to 2 million increase or decrease in the production of oil has a significant impact on price, right? It has a very material impact on the price of oil. When you talk about needing 35 million barrels less, that's entire country's production and then some that needs to be, be shut in. And in some cases, that is the primary or only source of income for a country. So, I mean, this is cataclysmic to say the least. Now, I understand why you know, Saudi and Russia got together to try to knock out the U.S. shale industry. That has very material geopolitical uh, impacts, and they would love, Russia and Saudi both would love nothing more than us not to be energy independent because it completely changes our incentive structure in the Middle East. That being said, we have created economics that is going to lead to wells being shut in. When we do that, as soon as we all start getting back on the road, and, you know, again, I'm not a believer that we're waiting for the governors and the president and the mayors to tell us to reopen. Uh, This country and countries around the world are going to reopen because it's going to be a matter of individual survival to do so. We're going to start driving, and we start driving. Let's say we shut in enough today to meet this 35 million barrel a day of demand destruction. Well, in eight weeks, we're going to need 5 million of those barrels back, 10 million of those barrels back. Well, where's the oil price has to go? And we've eliminated any 
investment for future growth, and we already had a lack of CapEx. So if you're in the V-shaped recovery, or even if you're in the U-shaped recovery camp, and you think we're going to get back to even 90% of where we were uh, another year from now, year and a half from now, there's a very real chance we're going to be short energy, as odd as that sounds. And so, you know, we're going to go from minus $38 on the barrel of oil to maybe we go back to 50 or $60 on a barrel of oil. And again, we're going to quickly go from deflation to inflation. Right. Yeah, that's something you can just flip back on. Those things. Uh, no. Fine. So uh, let's let's just wrap up today uh, talking about you know the, the reopening and and uh, I'll use the term despite the fact that you just mentioned earlier you don't love it but we're going to use it anyway um, you know we're starting to see cases on each coast declining uh, looks like we've rolled over the peak uh, but if we look at the U S interior uh, those cases are, are still continuing to increase um, but you know kind of what's your thoughts there and and, and uh, put those together for us yeah yeah as I said we're going to reopen I mean. People aren't going to be able to eat. They're not going to be able to survive unless we do. And politicians are going to, uh, you know, bow to that pressure. Um, it is the case that the the worst impacted areas in the Northeast and the West Coast who have been aggressive in trying to deal with those cases are already seeing a peak and a rolling over, and that's a fantastic sign. However, in the areas of the country in the interior where it was later to receive you know, a cluster of, of infected people, those cases are still accelerating. And so um, I'm not in the camp that, you know, we're past the peak and it's over. I think we're going to continue to have these regional flare-ups. And I think, uh, for the most part, the vast majority of the population is healthy and they're going to try to go on about their business. However, it does mean the vulnerable parts of the economy, people are still going to need to replenish incomes, they're going to need to find jobs. Uh, it's going to be a very, very slow economic recovery. And even in the command and control economy, such as China, where they've been open for a month, they've resumed activity. So production of goods is, is increasing, but consumption is barely getting off the zero bound from a growth and recovery standpoint. So, you know, Consumption in China is still down 20%. Um, let's say we have a similar experience here, and there's structural reasons in China why you know they're in a tough spot. The banking systems, it's structured very differently. The nature of their loans are very different. But when you look at the U.S., let's say even we get back to 90% or 95% uh, of the level of consumption we had before, we're still talking about 70% of our economy being down 5 to 10%. That's, that's a very material amount. I mean, that is a significant, significant recession in and of itself. So I think we're going we're gonna to begin to uh, recover from this. Um, as I said, you know, I don't like the concept of a closed versus open economy. Economies are always open. It's just what is the context? and the nature of activity and where the pressure is coming from. And so we're going to begin to recover from this, and it will start showing up in the data. And that's why the market bounced. That's what the market's telling us. But what it's not giving us is a signal that we're really in the all clear. As we've said, liquidity drives assets, credit leads equity, and the cash markets lead the credit markets. 
and the cash markets today are still in disarray. We're still seeing repo rates just turn, start to turn negative again. So volatility and a slow recovery is in front of us. Good. All right, Chris, we'll, uh, we'll pull the plug there. So thank you so much for this week. And, uh, you know, we're, we're looking forward to, to catching up. We'll do it again next week, and, and we'll keep yeah. it on going until things <laughs> finally work themselves through. So uh, we'll Sounds catch good, you again soon. And so very good. Thanks, Chris. You bet. Take care. The views, information, and or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Von Nelson and its employees. Von Nelson does not verify and assumes no responsibility for the accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast. The primary purpose of the information, opinions, and thoughts presented in this podcast is to educate and inform. This podcast, or any podcast in the series, does not constitute professional investment advice or services, and any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk. Past performance is not an indication of future performance. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that the entire contents of this podcast are the property of Von Nelson or used by Von Nelson with permission and are protected under U.S. copyright and trademark laws.